This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Hey, folks, welcome back. I'm Peter Capelli. And there's no Dan O'Mara here today. Dan is at the spa again. Uh, we don't know exactly what the treatment is he's taking this week, but with something about cold sculpting, laser thing, I'm not sure exactly what it is. We'll find out from him when he comes back next week, we hope, looking extra svelte and tan. So it's just me today. I'm a professor of management here at the Wharton School, and this is a show where we talk about things going on at work uh, individual things between bosses and employees and policy things and stuff going on that affects uh, most of us who are working. So let's get into what we're going to talk about today. we got several things on our agenda. We're going to talk first about some new evidence about what's happening in the management of people across companies, particularly bigger companies. We're going to talk after that about what's happening in emerging jobs, and particularly with respect to pay, which jobs are hot among the new ones. We're going to talk after that about low-wage workers and the efforts that they're engaged in and embarked on to try to do something about that. And in about a half hour, we're going to talk about uh, open mic time, some things that are happening in individual workplaces. We're going to start out talking about people stealing each other's lunch which turns out to be a remarkably widespread phenomena. And uh, we'll talk about what you might do about that, hardening the targets, you know, possibly guards around the refrigerator, all kinds of things we might do on that. And we'd like to hear about your experience with that. Just to give you a heads up, if you're listening on Thursday, we are live. So at that point, you can call in. Of course, if you've got thoughts along the way, you can call in as well. We're going to start out... The first half hour here talking about some new survey results uh, about what companies are doing, particularly larger companies, in the way they manage their employees. And with us is Erica Vellini, who is the human capital leader for the United States for Deloitte Consulting in their human capital practice. And they've just done a new report. I think they do this one every year, but we'll find out uh, about what companies say they're doing now around managing people. Erica, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Erica, uh, first question here. How did you get into this business? Um, did you think, uh, did you grow up as a kid saying, I want to be a consultant in human resources? How did you get to this particular path? I'm not sure anyone grows up thinking they're going to be a consultant in human resources. Yeah. Um, I actually grew up thinking I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, uh, yeah. So that was my game plan. I went yep. to uh, Cornell and uh, majored in industrial and labor relations, uh -huh. and just dealing with um, union relations just really got a flavor for the employee-employer relationship, which was fascinating. Okay. And um, from there, just took an internship and got into the world of consulting, and frankly, was hooked from day one. And so, um, you know, that's what's that's where my career has gone. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's funny, a lot of people think, oh, you do human resources. 
what is that? And I think to myself, well, it's only the study of everything that impacts the relationship between the employer and the employee, yep. which I think yep. is actually one of the broadest topics out there. So yeah, it definitely right. keeps me engaged. Uh, I think that's right. It's also true that if you think about who is in charge of management, um, it's the function that's closest to it, right? Uh, and management touches everybody in the organization. Um, let me just ask you about consulting in the HR world. Do you think this is more fun than actually being a practitioner? Um, <laughs> it's hard to compare. I mean, the beauty of consulting is that you get to see what's happening across so many organizations yep. and so many industries and sectors. And I think in today's world, where there is so much industry consolidation and so many companies competing with new companies that they never would have before, mm -hmm. it's actually pretty exciting to get to share those lessons learned. Mm -hmm. So to yep. me, that's really what keeps me going. Yep. Probably much more interesting than being in the same company all the time. I'm sure that's right. So you guys have done this Global Human Resource Capital Trends Report, and uh, you do this every year? We do. This is actually our seventh year of producing the report. It's a global human capital trend survey. Okay. It's actually the largest and um, most longitudinal study on human capital issues in the world. So how many people did you talk to for this one? A little over 11,000. Wow. Yeah, wow. Um, across 124 countries. Okay. And what's important to know is we talk to HR leaders, but we also talk to business leaders. Okay. So 40% of the people uh, who responded to the survey uh, were executives in businesses. And so okay. it really represents the holistic view okay. of how management is thinking about these issues. So uh, if I can just jump in here and start asking you some questions about it, uh, and um, maybe the first question, which is how do non-HR people think about these issues differently than HR people do? You may not have cut the data that way, but I wonder if you've got a uh, a view about it. This is about human capital issues, but you're asking non-HR people as well some of these questions, right? We are. And okay. I think in general, you know, what we find is that, um, you know, HR can often be more optimistic about what's going on out there, frankly, than, than business leaders. Oh. Um, but I think that's changed over time. Okay. If I think about uh, the report over time, I think HR, as it's gotten way closer to the business okay. and has truly started to understand the business needs, okay. we're starting to see more of a convergence there. You think they're just more isolated from the um, from the demands of business, or you think they just have a rosier, they had a rosier view of what was going on in terms of competitive pressures and things? You know, I think it's, it's, it's about the maturity of the HR profession. I think in organizations that are progressive where HR not only has a seat at the table, but is literally helping a, uh, the business plan out and execute their business strategy, there's tremendous alignment. Okay. Um, and we see a lot of large organizations are there or are getting there. Yep. There are still plenty of organizations where HR is viewed as personnel, as yep. a back office function that provides support. And in that way, if HR is not on the front line, it's very hard to really see the issues that the business is facing every day. Right. You probably couldn't do it even if they wanted to. Uh, so let's get into some of the things that you found in this uh, survey. But let me ask uh, maybe the first part of that. You look around the world. So this survey goes U.S. and how many other countries? 123 other countries besides oh, the U.S. That's a lot. And there are only, I think, 196 countries in the world, so that's pretty good. It <laughs> that's is. pretty big. Uh, can you tell us anything about what the differences are in terms of the way 
executives see things in different parts of the world, say Europe, North America, say, or Southeast Asia compared to the, the U.S.? What do you, you know, what do you see? Well, it's interesting. So the theme of our report is called the, the, the report's called the rise of the social enterprise. Okay. And the premise of the report is essentially that um, organizations are playing a bigger role and are being called on to play a bigger role in society than they ever have before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's due to a number of macro factors. One is uh, the power of the individual, the individual, especially the millennials, um, is they truly believe that businesses need to be more involved um, in in societal issues. So you think, let me stop you on that. So you think the companies actually are doing this uh, because their employees want them to? No, I think it's, I think it's because they have to. I think it's because um, employees are demanding it, but I also think it's because there's a significant gap not being filled by government. And in fact, we reference in the report the Edelman Trust Index that shows that um, the majority of the global population has more trust in business than they do in government. Wow, yeah. Exactly. Mm. And someone has wow. to fill that gap. And yeah. when you think about mm-hmm. the organization, you're talking about entities that have resources, capabilities, money, um, and they are being called on to play a much more significant role yep. um, in, yep. in addressing some big issues that society mm-hmm. is facing from the aging of the workforce to um, citizenship issues to a call for, for greater well-being uh, for the workforce to reskilling the workforce in the age of robotics and automation. And so these are huge societal issues. And the question is, who is going to solve them if government can't? Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I, uh, there's a couple of countries I know reasonably well in this dimension, and they're at opposite ends of the spectrum. So one is India, where what you're saying is exactly true, right? And the companies are doing it there, as you say, because they have to, uh, because things need to be done just for their business, and nobody else is doing it. So, for example, in transportation, you know, they're providing transportation for employees because there's no public transportation that's useful in a lot of these places. And then you go to China, and it's the opposite, that business has got no role, really, in a lot of these issues in China, because you've got a government that I don't think wants <laughs> wants them to be involved in that, you know. Uh, so I that's, think the question will be, um, you know, what is society going to say? And, you know, will it be up to the government to make that decision, or will the voice of the individual? And when I say individual, I don't just mean the employee, yep. but the voice of the consumer – the voice of the investor. I mean, we reference in here, and I'm sure you saw, the CEO of BlackRock, largest investment firm in the world. You know, uh, Larry Fink put out a memo in January basically saying he believes companies need to step up and play a bigger role in society. So Mm -hmm. you have consumers, employees, through the millennials, investors, all asking for organizations to step up. It's hard to believe that that trend is not going to have an impact across the world. And that's really what we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I I would like to be optimistic and think that's uh, true. I'm kind of cynical on some of these things, but uh, it's certainly the right direction. So let's turn to what you're hearing in terms of some of the more specific findings, particularly the findings you're seeing on personalization. We hear that a lot. What does it mean when we talk about companies are moving toward personalizing things more? What's that mean? Um, personalization basically means that you're not treating every single employee the same. Okay. And frankly, you can't do that in today's world because if you just think about the workforce today, you have 
everyone from full-time employees to freelancers to contractors to crowds. Um, and then you have everyone from Generation Z to, frankly, your baby boomers who are working longer in the workplace. And so to me, personalization reflects the fact that everyone needs something different, um, and you need to meet them where they are. And okay. the biggest area we saw um, calling for personalization in this year's report was actually around rewards. Really? Hmm. Yes. Hmm. Um, and it, I think it's about time. It's, it's been interesting. Last year in our trends report, we wrote about the change to performance management. Yep. And you know, being in this space, that many companies, in fact, we would say 90% of companies have overhauled their performance management processes hmm. to provide better uh, feedback to their employees. But okay. Very few touched rewards. Okay. Um, and so, you know, our survey showed, and these are woefully low numbers, only 6% of our respondents said that rewards programs are effective at attracting talent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Only 8% said they're effective at retaining talent. Mm-hmm. And so what we believe is that companies need to change their rewards programs to be more agile, um, provided more than once a year, and therefore personalized. So when you okay. do something great, you get rewarded for it okay. um, in the moment. And that's a great example of how personalization can lead to not just increased happiness, but frankly, increased productivity, which okay. is really what we're focused on. So are you seeing that they're they're talking about reforming performance management, but they haven't really gotten to the rewards part of that yet, or they're still very talking? Few, very few organizations have even touched rewards. Okay. It's probably the single area in HR that I think has remained untouched for the longest and therefore yeah. the most ripe for opportunity. Okay. Let's just remind listeners what we're doing. You're in the workplace. I'm Peter Capelli, professor of management here at the Wharton School. I'm talking with Erica Vellini, who is the head for the U.S. of, of Deloitte's human capital consulting business. And we're talking about a new survey they've done, a global survey of human capital issues where they surveyed 11,000, I hope I got that right, executives around the world, HR people, but also non-HR people. I want to return to this issue of personalization because this is a profound change in organizational life. And I'd like to see if anybody listening out there could ping us on this and give us their sense about it because here's the idea, right? A generation or so ago... Uh, companies went to great lengths to try to treat everybody the same way because that was the concern about fairness is you ought to have the same policies for everybody, uh, and some of that is reinforced by law, right? So laws around benefits, for example, health care, stuff like that, you can't offer different policies to different employees. You can't treat them differently or you risk... Issues of discrimination, for example. So companies on that angle went to great lengths to treat everybody the same way. That was the safe thing to do, and it was perceived to be the fair thing to do. And now, as you're describing it, companies are moving away from that. And I wonder if you're a listener, what do you think about this? Is this a scary thing, or is this a good thing. Here's our number, one eight four four wharton There's an H in Wharton. you got to find it, but it's right after the W. A hint, or if you like numbers better, one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Is this a good thing that we're no longer treating everybody the same way? Now, um, Erica, let me ask you about this. If I, I might be nervous about this if I'm an employee, because I might be saying, okay, so my supervisor now has more discretion to treat people differently 
I'm afraid that means my supervisor is going to reward their friends more and the people they don't like less. What do you tell those people? You know, essentially, that's assuming that it's up to the supervisor to make those discretionary decisions. Yeah. As I think about personalization and rewards, it's really more personalization on behalf of what the employee prefers. So, for example, um, we've we've encouraged our clients to move away from standard benchmarking um, for rewards, which basically just tells you what everyone else is doing. Okay. And to move to using, um, you know, analytics to put out to your employees choices for them to make. So would you rather get one day of additional time off or would you rather get $1,000 in your paycheck? Okay. The truth is if you are at different parts of your life, you may choose a different option. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get less or more, Mm -hmm. but the way in which you receive those rewards can be tailored to how you're feeling at a certain moment in your life. And that level of personalization I think is where – the employee can feel that their employer really understands them. Okay. And that's what's going to enhance that relationship. So what do you, let me ask you what you find in, in that. In some ways, this sounds a lot like cafeteria benefits from a generation ago, right? Uh, when Which was the same idea, and it was a perfectly sensible idea. If you had, let's say, insurance already because you were married to somebody whose insurance policy covered you, you could take the money that your employer would have spent for your insurance and spend it in some other way, right? And so this is kind of an extension of that, pushing it out on rewards. Do you actually do you see companies actually doing this yet? Absolutely. Oh, we okay. see companies doing this because I think they're finding that rewards they're not they need to find ways in which to to increase productivity. And that okay. all comes down to motivation and okay. rewards play a big part in that. You know, and one of the things we're talking about right now is it's not just rewards. It's the overall relationship with your employees. So when you look at rewards, you have to look at it beyond comp and Ben. It's about what learning opportunities do you offer. Okay. It's about career mobility. It's about taking a more holistic look at what the relationship is between the employee and the employer. Okay. And I think that shift in mindset is also important because if you think about this generation, and I think this is something that's incredibly important to the employee experience that you mentioned earlier. Lifelong learning is a trend we're seeing. Um, and this idea of creating career experiences over time, not mm-hmm. just career paths. Mm-hmm. And that has tremendous value to this generation because this generation knows they're not working for 40 years. They're probably working for 60 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe. And so they need to have the skills and constantly be upgrading their skills especially as automation comes into play. And mm-hmm. so I think when organizations recognize that rewards is broader than just how you pay, yep. but rewards is also how you prepare those employees for the workforce they're working in in the future, yep. that's when you can really start to create a simply irresistible experience. Well, let, let, not to get too far ahead of your story, because I may ask you about this in a minute, but uh, just to highlight for people, we know that in your results here, you're actually, I think, finding that employers are not training people very much, right? Which I think is... Uh, something maybe we'll come back to in, in a minute here. We have at least one caller, got a couple callers on the line here on this question of individualization and is this going to be a good thing or not? Mary's calling from Texas. Mary, what do you think? It sounds wonderful, particularly if it will address finally the issue of equal pay for equal work Ooh. so that we- so that women uh, will actually be rewarded financially for doing a really good job. Okay. 
Um, so uh, let me uh, ask Erica that for a second here. Do you think this is going to be a way to equalize pay? Or if you're cynical like me, would you say uh, if there's more discretion, um, maybe the, it's harder to figure out whether there are actually pay differences between men and women, right? What do you think, Erica? Uh, I would love to believe that it would. Um, yeah. I think it's, you know, equal pay is a very complex issue. I don't think there's one thing that's going to solve it. I think it comes from a number of different factors, management training, using analytics to spot where the challenges are, and then making a leadership commitment to addressing it. I certainly think this could provide more transparency in terms of where the issues exist, but I think think it would be hard. I'd be hard pressed to say that it's going to be a solution to an issue as large as equal pay. Mary, let me just ask you, do you feel comfortable if uh, your employer, let's say, said, we're going to try to individualize things more, we're going to try to treat people differently based on their needs and performance? Would that make you feel better, optimistic, or nervous? It would not bother me, and that's assuming that I am doing my job well. Okay. I'm being yeah. a, I'm being asked to perform my job with the with the right resources, and that the person that is sitting in judgment and in management is someone that is being fair yeah. in their uh, mm-hmm. uh, evaluation. Yeah. And do you think all those things line up in your current job? You're okay with you'd be okay if this happened there. I'm not currently working, but okay. I'm speaking from previous previous experience. experience. Yeah, yeah. But I think that the problem is, is that so often studies like this, which are essentially drafted by women, are are implemented by men, ah. and without getting too patriarchal in my my view here, I think that there needs they need, we need to have more women in upper management so as to level the playing field mm-hmm. in, in terms of women's rights because women are increasingly uh, composing a larger portion of the workforce, and I think that they need to be rewarded fairly according to what, what kind of job they do. Yep, yep, sounds good. Mary, thanks for that. And uh, let's uh, go back to Erica here for just a minute. And maybe if it's okay, Erica, we'll switch topics a little bit. We just got a few more minutes with you here. Turn to some of the other questions. Uh, let's pick up this question of, of training and career development. So one of the themes that you folks are looking at is what happens to careers. How are companies thinking about that differently? What do you see there? Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, so we've been very focused on shifting from career paths to career experiences, the idea being that the traditional hierarchy in an organization last year in our trends report, we found that it was going away in lieu of networks of teams, individuals working together on teams, on projects and assignments, and that impacts the career hierarchy as well. Okay. And what was fascinating about this year is that 72% of our respondents said, good news, the career paths at our companies are not based on the, on the organizational hierarchy. So they're they're changing their career paths to not make them follow the hierarchy, which would make us think that they are making progress. But only 18% feel that their career paths actually give their employees the ability to actively develop themselves Mm. and chart new pathways for their careers. So I still think that we have a massive gap here in thinking about how do we restructure careers? How do we focus on giving individuals the right experiences, giving them the right level of exposure, 
combined with the right level of education on learning those new skills. And the report showed us very clearly that organizations haven't figured out how to solve this particular issue yet. And yet we know it's a burning platform issue Mm -hmm. because we know that learning and learning new skills is one of the main reasons why employees stay at a mm-hmm. company. Yep, and that certainly makes sense for retention. Uh, let me, uh, you'll get a theme, uh, you'll pick up the theme here. Let me be cynical again uh, on this <laughs> and ask whether you think maybe companies are just redefining what they mean by career development, career advancement. If a career path no longer looks like the hierarchy, uh, then that means you're not moving up necessarily with a career path. You're just moving to different jobs, and if an employee is thinking about career advancement, they typically think, I'm going to go up, more power, more influence, more money, and in fact, we're now saying, no, career advancement is lateral. Uh, Is that really what's going on here? We just kind of changed the name of what, uh, we've changed the definition of what career advancement is. Yeah, you know... um I'm going to make, Eric, I'm going to make you cynical by the time this conversation's <laughs> over. <laughs> uh, listen, I, I think, I don't think organizations are doing that purposefully. Okay. Um, no. Um, but I think the, the reality is, is that the generations think about this differently. Whereas I would agree, even my own generation, we thought you have to move up the career ladder. That's the only way to get more pay. That's the only way to, to get broader access. That's the only way to advance. I think this generation, and we found this through our own millennial study, has shown that they're okay with a lateral career advancement as long as they are learning new skills. And to go back to our point around rewards, as long as they're being rewarded for the acquisition of those skills. And sometimes the reward is the ability to move from organization to organization um, because they've acquired those new skills that are going to make them more attractive in the career marketplace. And so I actually think there's just a totally different mentality for the millennial generation and the mm-hmm. generation to come mm-hmm. about how they look at careers. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think organizations need to start talking about it differently mm-hmm. and talking about the, it in the context of experiences versus career paths. Okay. Even for myself, and you asked me about my career, I actually started with a different large consulting firm who at the time was frankly the number one consulting firm and the reason why I didn't join them was because they said here's your path and I thought to myself I don't want to know what my path is at 21 Mm -hmm. years old Mm -hmm. and I just think this idea of I want to know I'm going to get the right experiences and skills that are going to help make sure that I am optimally placed in the career market is a very different question that organizations need to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just, in the last couple of minutes, point out something I think is really interesting in this study, if people want to uh, download it and look at it. And they can do that on your website, right? Uh, if they just search for that, if they go to the Deloitte website and you look for the rise of the social... Well, well no, you look for the 2018 Deloitte Global Human Capital Trends study, at least that's how I got it, uh, is the big disconnect you see between what companies say is important, and what they are actually doing or at least ready to do uh, on everything from robotics to social impact to rewards. You know, they report a lot of these things are really important, um, but they're not ready for them. So do you think this, well, full employment plan for you guys, right, to help them do this, I suppose, but uh, (laughs) do you think they're going to close this gap or we're going to see the same thing next year, you think? First of all, I don't think there's a choice. I think they have to fill this gap. Um, I think this is their survive or thrive um, 
time with, with, with these particular issues, especially we're going to have the jobs report coming out tomorrow. We're in the lowest unemployment uh, rate we've had in many, many, many years. Um, yeah, but can I, just th- can I just interrupt you on that one? Do you notice the unemployment rate has not declined at all in six months? And something that wasn't pointed out so much when they looked at the jobs added is that we added 800,000 new people to the labor force last month. So that's why the unemployment rate is not going down is because we're adding jobs, but people are still coming in. Right. I think what's interesting is people are actually coming in in different ways, right? They're coming in through the gig economy as freelancers and contractors more than they are as full-time employees, which is a whole other topic we could probably talk about. But I think you hit it on the head. It's Mm -hmm. about readiness. Um, I do think organizations will get there. And actually, the way I think they're going to need to get there, our number one finding in this year's trends report was around the C-suite. And what we found was that the C-suite in organizations is not working together collectively to tackle these issues. Mm -hmm. In fact, 73% of our respondents said their C-suite rarely, if ever, works together on projects or issues. And I think until the Mm -hmm. C-suite starts to work as a team, like the networks of teams we're seeing at at different levels of the organization, it's going to be hard for organizations to fill that readiness gap. And that is the biggest call to action we actually had in our report. Okay, yeah, interesting. Let me give you... One last question here before we let you go, and that is, uh, let me give you the Peter Capelli 2018 Global Human Capital Human Capital Trends report here, and here's what it's going to say. It's going to say that we've gone through, since 2008, the worst labor market for employees and the best labor market for employers in 80 years or so. And a lot of things happened during that enormously bad downturn. Uh, which are temporary. And one of them is the fact that employers were not giving people long-term careers, that they could hire contractors, that they could hire temps, they could give people short-term assignments, they could not train people. And I think we look at workers now responding to that reality, and we're assuming they like it. And I don't think they do. I don't think they want to hop from job to job. I don't think they want to be contractors. I think they would prefer a steady job in a steady place. And now that the economy is tightening, as you point out, you know, the labor market is certainly much tighter than it's been at least in a couple of decades. Uh, The pressure is going to be on companies to deal with that. And I think we're making a mistake if we assume that the employees like what's been going on over the last 10 years. So we'll invite you back next year, and we will see with the new report uh, whether the Peter Capelli report plays out correctly or not. (laughs) I would love to do that, and I hope everyone downloads the uh, Trends Report. There's actually an app that's available on the website that people can access and play with the data themselves and get a sense of what they think about it and uh, dive into the trends in more detail. Great. Erica, thanks very much for being with us. Erica Vellini is U.S. Human Capital Leader for Deloitte Consulting, and the new report is Deloitte's 2018 Global Human Capital Trends Report, 11,000 Executive Surveyed. We're going to take a break now and thumb through the rest of the report, and we're going to come back right after this break in three minutes and talk about pay and more jobs. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.